Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. So welcome again to our Cases and Controversies Working From Home edition. This is our fourth session where we're attempting to work from home here and still bring you your podcast. We're recording this on Thursday, April 9th. We got our first coronavirus-related Supreme Court ruling in the contentious dispute over Wisconsin voting rules, and another coronavirus dispute is brewing over abortion in Texas that could be coming to the justices soon, too. We also got a couple of 8-1 opinions in argued cases, again with a problematic SCOTUS website issue with Justice Thomas on both sides of those 8-1 opinions in cases about employment discrimination and the Fourth Amendment. We also learned that Chief Justice Roberts is keeping a little bit more social distance after our uh, last podcast that mentioned that he was working from the court. He probably listened and was like... (laughs) And later in the episode, we're going to bring on Kansas Attorney General Derek Schmidt, whose office, with a win in that Fourth Amendment case, pulled off a clean sweep at the high court this term with a three-peat. All right, uh, let's kick things off with the situation out in Wisconsin, which is totally nutty. That's a legal yes. term. Uh, yes. The opinion, which broke down along ideological lines, starts like this. Uh, Wisconsin had decided to proceed with the election scheduled for Tuesday, April 7th. The wisdom of that decision is not the question before the court. I really like that. Basically, the court's like, this is not wise. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Jordan, why don't you tell us? about what's happening here. Sure, so I'll set the backdrop a little bit. Um, a trigger warning for listeners, um, this case does involve some overlap between law and politics. People whom that makes uncomfortable, you know, you might want to just skip ahead a little bit to the episode. So this is what happened in Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin held elections in a number of races on Tuesday, April 7th, including the Democratic presidential primary and a contentious bout for a state Supreme Court seat where a liberal was challenging an incumbent conservative. Uh, Despite health issues surrounding the coronavirus pandemic, the state legislature, which is controlled by Republicans, refused to postpone the election. The Democratic governor, meanwhile, was getting criticism for not doing anything about it, so he eventually issued an executive order pushing the primary to June. But that move was overturned by the Republican-controlled state Supreme Court. In light of the pandemic ahead of the election, a federal district judge ruled that absentee votes could be counted until April 13th, regardless of when they're mailed. So then the Republican National Committee and Wisconsin Republicans appealed that ruling, taking the case to the Supreme Court, seeking a stay of that federal district ruling. Uh, Wisconsin Republicans and National Republicans said that federal judge wasn't allowed to intervene to that extent, while Democrats worried that thousands of voters would be disenfranchised due to fears that they wouldn't have their absentee ballots in time due to issues processing ballots in light of the pandemic. So it's a super uh, meta voting pandemic issue that was just a huge mess. So in the Supreme Court, I'm sure everybody agreed on what should happen. And, you know, they issued an opinion unanimously, right? That's, this sounds like that's where this is headed. Not a unanimous opinion, exactly, but a (laughs) pure curium opinion, um, which uh, Supreme Court listeners or just people who know Latin stuff know. um, That's an opinion for the court. I think that's what that means. It means it's an an unsigned opinion. No one's uh, putting their name to it as having uh, taken responsibility for for writing the majority opinion. And that Supreme Court's per curiam opinion sided with the Republicans in the dispute, the Wisconsin Republicans and the Republican National Committee. So the per curiam opinion, as you alluded to, Kimberly, began by saying that the wisdom of the decision to hold the 
election despite the pandemic wasn't before the court. Rather, as the per curiam opinion framed it, it was just a, quote, narrow technical question about the absentee ballot process, end quote. Nothing so to see per- here. Don't don't worry. <laughs> exactly. It's a narrow technical question. Um, and so by changing the election rule so close to the election date, the Supreme Court's per curiam opinion said, the district court contravened court precedent and erred by ordering the relief the district court ordered. Uh, the Supreme Court's per curiam opinion said that the court has repeatedly emphasized that lower courts should ordinarily not alter the election rules on the eve of an election. The court pointed to a 2006 case called Purcell, uh, which led to people in discussing election law referring to a Purcell principle in terms of talking about not making changes judicially right before an election. And so, again, to sum up, the per curiam opinion sided with the Republicans in the dispute. So, Jordan, that per curiam opinion wasn't actually for the entire court, was it? Uh, no, it was very much not for the entire court. Justice Ginsburg wrote an impassioned dissent joined by the other three Democratic appointees, Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor, uh, too passionate for the procuring majority, apparently, which complained about the dissent's rhetoric. Oh, do tell. Yeah, so we know that as we were talking about the procurement opinion, it framed it as this narrow technical issue, not talking about the wisdom of holding the election, that sort of thing. Ginsburg, for the dissent, frames the case as the majority intervening at the 11th hour to prevent voters who have timely requested absentee ballots from casting their votes. Uh, she said that accommodating the surge of absentee ballot requests had heavily burdened election officials in the state, resulting in a severe backlog of ballots requested but not promptly mailed to voters. Justice Ginsburg said it was actually the Supreme Court majority that was wrongly imposing last-minute changes, contravening that Purcell principle, not the district court. She said the majority's order requires absentee voters to postmark their ballots by Election Day, April 7th, um, even if they didn't receive their ballots by that date. She called that, quote, a novel requirement, end quote, that wasn't in place previously. And she said that she didn't doubt the good faith of her colleagues, but she said that she feared that it would result in massive disenfranchisement, forcing voters to choose between voting and their health. And she said that a voter can't deliver for postmarking a ballot that she has not yet received. These voting cases really uh, seem to strike a chord with some of the justices. Mm -hmm. Do you remember um, Justice Ginsburg dissent reminds me of another recent dissent in Rocha versus Common Cause, which came out last term. Mm, right. And that was an, another 5-4 case uh, that you know broke along ideological lines. This one dealing with partisan gerrymandering. Uh, again, it was the Republican appointees in the majority and the Democratic appointees in dissent. Uh, but instead of Justice Ginsburg writing, it was Justice Kagan. And actually, while reading her dissent from the bench, it seemed like Justice Kagan um, started to tear up. And in her opinion, she ended it by saying, with respect, but deep sadness, I dissent. So not something you see every day, but um, seems like these voting cases really sting for some of the justices. Yeah, that's what it all comes down to, these voting cases. And of course, the case the year before Common Cause, one of the cases leading up to that dispute was Gill against Whitford, which came from Wisconsin. So it's all coming full circle. Wow. Wow. Uh, right. Well, and then, you know, to bring it even more full circle, can Whoa. you do more full circle? Are we in a spiral? <laughs> Uh, full, full double circle. It, the whole notorious RBG thing came from a voting rights case, um, the 2013 Shelby County case. So also a 5-4 breakdown. Oh, true. And even to triple full circle, um, <laughs> Wisconsin is the 
home state of former Chief Justice uh, William Rehnquist, who uh, has wow. been a Democrat <laughs> foe in uh, voting rights cases. So you want to just stop the circle there and move on? Uh, I think we should. Okay. I think now it's, it's more like sure. a drain rather than a circle. Okay, sure. <laughs> Putting the voting issue on hold for a moment, the next coronavirus case at the Supreme Court could involve yet another hot button issue, abortion, right? Yes. So on to another controversial topic, abortion. So here the issue is that state officials in Texas, like many other states, have halted certain uh, medical procedures. Here that includes abortion. And they say it's in an effort to preserve medical supplies. Now, abortion clinics in Texas have said that the ban is unconstitutional, and they've sued to allow them in certain circumstances, uh, particularly where all that occurs is that a woman takes a pill to terminate uh, her pregnancy. So the Fifth Circuit allowed the prohibition to stay in place, and it seems like there will be a little more jockeying in the lower courts, but this one could come to the U.S. Supreme Court eventually. And of course, the justices are already considering another abortion-related regulation out of Louisiana regarding admitting privileges. That one was argued in March, uh, one of the last cases that the Supreme Court heard before closing down. So uh, probably have some more time before that opinion comes out. Right. And it's not just election and abortion, but all sorts of rights that are being tested in this coronavirus era, pretty much the whole Bill of Rights. So I'm sure there'll be more cases that keep popping up as this pandemic keeps moving on. Yes, the Third Amendment, um, I think it's going to make a comeback. We're not there yet. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't. Right. I mean, I know everybody listening to this podcast uh, knows the the Third Amendment, but um, just as a refresher, um, we'll, you know, mention that it's a prohibition against quartering soldiers. And I think it's the only right in the Bill of Rights that hasn't been adjudicated at the Supreme Court. Not recently that I remember. Not recently. I don't really pay attention. So. (laughs) All right. Well, our producer is chugging vodka. Well, we'll keep an eye on the emergency docket, also known as the shadow docket. Uh, We'll keep our eye on that. That's where a lot of good things at the Supreme Court happens, or bad things, depending on your point of view. A lot of things. Uh, But we also got a couple opinions in argued cases, though uh, we had an... uh, some more hiccups on the SCOTUS website. Uh, instead of releasing the opinions a few minutes apart, it, both of them appeared at the same time, uh, dropped at 10 a.m. And actually only one had a viable link to the opinion. So, um, you know, the court got about a half of a million dollars in the third <laughs> coronavirus stimulus package. So maybe they can, uh, you know, put some money towards the website. Yeah. Just saying. As a recommendation to the Chief Justice, if he's listening. And he is. Exactly. Uh, eventually, though, we did get both links, um, so we were able to see what the justices said. They were both cases stemming from memorable oral argument moments. First up is one that listeners might recall uh, as the OK Boomer case, Bab versus Wilkie. That's the age discrimination case where Chief Justice Roberts uttered the infamous millennial slang uh, during arguments back in January. So what type oh, yeah, I remember that one. Any type. Let's say in the course of the, you know, weeks-long process, you know, one comment about age. You know, the hiring person who's younger says, you know, okay, boomer, uh, you know, once, uh, once to the, to the applicant. So what happened with the actual opinion? Uh, Well, they didn't uh, address whether or not okay, boomer was enough. Wow. um, Surprisingly. I thought at least they'd have, uh, 
Yeah. Okay, boomer. Um, (laughs) The issue here was what plaintiffs must prove in order to bring an age discrimination claim. Now, the court recently issued its ruling in the Comcast case, which involved a similar issue uh, involving race discrimination. The justices there said in a unanimous opinion that plaintiffs must prove but for causation, rejecting a lower causation standard that would have made it easier to bring those claims. But here the court went the other way, saying that the specific language in this age discrimination statute required that any employment decision be made free from any consideration of age. So the plaintiffs there don't need to allege that age was the sole reason for the adverse employment decision, just that age played a factor in the decision. Anyway, in the second opinion, which we eventually got a link from, thanks to the Supreme Court, uh, Thomas was on the other side of the fray, writing for the majority in the Fourth Amendment case, Kansas against Glover. And that was a case that we previewed for a deep dive way back in our term preview episode with Sarah Harrington, who represented the defendant Glover, who challenged the stop of his truck. And this was also a memorable argument back in November, where Sarah had a fun back and forth Um, with Justice Gorsuch. Why why shouldn't we read the... um the declaration here is effectively saying that, um, that I assume, I'm an officer. This is what I do. Right. I assume this is the driver. This okay? is Kansas, not This is the right. owner, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Why, why Good impression there, Justice Gorsuch. The uh, so how did the case turn out? Well, we're going to discuss the case a little bit with our guest, but I'll tee it up first. The issue in the case was whether a police officer violates the Fourth Amendment by initiating an investigative traffic stop after running a vehicle's license plate and learning that the registered owner has a revoked driver's license. So Justice Thomas wrote for the court that when the officer lacks information negating an inference that the owner is the driver of the vehicle, the stop is reasonable. So that was the court's holding. Justice Kagan wrote a concurrence joined by Justice Ginsburg, calling the case a strange one. She noted that it came to the court on a bare bones record containing just a single simple fact that a police officer learned from a state database that a car on the road belonged to a person with a revoked license. So ruling against Glover here, Kagan wrote, doesn't mean that cases with more complete records were all wind up being in the same place. So this was a narrow case, perhaps even narrower than the Wisconsin election ruling that we discussed earlier. Justice Sotomayor dissented. She was the one in this 8-1 case saying that the majority ignores key foundations of our reasonable suspicion jurisprudence and impermissibly and unnecessarily reduces the state's burden of proof. All right. Well, let's bring on our guest, Kansas Attorney General Derek Schmidt. Derek Schmidt is the 44th Attorney General of Kansas. He was first elected in 2010 and then twice re-elected. Before becoming AG, he was a Kansas state senator. He's argued three cases in the U.S. Supreme Court. Most recently, this term's Kansas against Garcia. We'll hear argument first this morning in case 17-834, Kansas versus Garcia. General Schmidt. Attorney General Schmidt, welcome to Cases and Controversies, and thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. So you and your state pulled off a notable feat this term. Uh, Garcia is one of three cases from Kansas that the Supreme Court heard argued, all in just a four-week period in the fall, along with the insanity defense case, Kaler, and the Fourth Amendment case, Glover, that Kimberly and I discussed earlier in the episode. And even more notably than that, Kansas won all three cases. 
end, if my math is correct, as it happens, the Garcia case was the third case in your career that you won and argued. So you're coming off a double three-peat of sorts. So congratulations on that. Um, the question is, what's happening out in Kansas that's caused three unrelated cases to be at the Supreme Court this term? Well, I suppose the stars just align, for better or for worse, depending on your perspective. Uh, we happen to have three cases, uh, each of which came up through the state courts and our Supreme Court. They're unrelated to each other. They happen to reach decision within you know, a few months of each other. So uh, three cases over a four-week period, that's a pretty tight timeline. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your preparations for the three arguments and how you wound up dividing up the arguments between yourself and Kansas Solicitor General Toby Krause? Yeah, well, our solicitors team at the Kansas AG's office, uh, as well as uh, good old-fashioned black coffee, were really the two <laughs> secrets. Uh, we, we've got a terrific team of uh, talented appellate attorneys here. It's something we're very proud of that we've built up over uh, the years that I've had the privilege of serving. And uh, obviously, as any appellate litigator would be, they are quite excited whenever they get to work on a U.S. Supreme Court case. So to have three moving at roughly the same time um, was very special. And it's something I'm sure all of them, and I know I, will remember for all of our careers. So you know, how do you do it? You do it uh, one brief at a time, deadline to deadline, and uh, and just keep going. And so all three cases that were argued this term, of course, were different. Glover deals with the Fourth Amendment, Kaler with the insanity defense, Garcia with whether state prosecutions are preempted by federal law. Um, maybe it's hard to say, Attorney General Schmidt, but which case do you think is going to have the biggest impact? Well, I, I think it is hard to say. Uh, I think Kaler is probably the most uh, substantive constitutional question that was decided among the three cases, and so there's a good argument that it uh, may have the biggest long-term impact, at least in the development of the law. Glover, of course, also a constitutional case, but as you suggest, narrower, and the court was very clear, uh, particularly when you read the concurrence together with the majority opinion, that it was very fact-specific and, and very narrow in its application. Garcia, uh, you know, not a constitutional case, except to the extent that it's a supremacy clause issue, but it was a federal statutory preemption case. Um, but obviously it relates to the intersection of two very important subjects, which are uh, often the source of legal controversy because of their nature. Uh, on the one hand, immigration law, and on the other hand, state police powers, particularly in the area of the general criminal law, including but not limited to identity theft. So I suppose there's an argument to be made as well that Garcia may have the most noticeable effect, at least in the short term, because uh, there may be policy makers who want to take action based on that in a way they wouldn't on, on Kaler or Glover. So now all of your cases have, uh, for the term, have been argued and decided, but the court has a bit of a dilemma on its hand that we've been trying to puzzle over the last few weeks. The March and April argument sessions have both been postponed, and the court seems to indicate that it's not clear what they're going to do about them. Do you have any thoughts on uh, whether or not the court will be shifting in any way uh, about how it usually handles arguments? Well, of course not, other than uh, you know, what I've read, uh, the statements from the court, uh, like everybody else, you know, all of us who have the privilege of leading any institution, public or private, but particularly on the public side right now, 
we have a lot of challenges in managing our ordinary responsibilities, many of which are required by law and really not discretionary, with, on the other hand, the realities of disrupted staffing and being sensitive to the needs of our employees and to the public interest uh, in this uh, COVID-19 crisis. We're operating right now on substantially reduced capacity at the Kansas Attorney General's office. We have limited our day-to-day uh, -day work to the really most urgent and essential functions. And when all of this passes or eases or abates, uh, we're going to have to make some difficult management decisions on how to ramp back up and catch back up. And I suspect that that generic point will apply to the uh, uh, court just as it does to other institutions. They're going to have some of those tough choices to make and they'll make them and we'll all adapt. And so speaking of the coronavirus crisis that you mentioned and making tough decisions, I wanted to ask just switching gears a bit from the Supreme Court issue itself, maybe you could talk a little bit about how the issue is impacting how you're doing your job at your state. Previously in the episode, Kimberly and I discussed the really heated situation in Wisconsin, and it doesn't appear that you have a situation like that in Kansas. But I saw, for example, that there was an order from the governor that had restricted in-person religious gatherings due to the coronavirus and that uh, you issued a statement and correct me if I'm wrong in saying that uh, you agreed with the public health issue but you said that you strongly dis discouraged law enforcement from attempting to enforce that order criminally by arresting people for getting into religious gatherings. I wonder if you can talk a bit about that and how that's the whole virus issue is affecting uh, your work on the state level too. Yeah. I mean, I think Kansas, like many other states, is just everybody doing the best we can in our area of responsibility day to day in dealing with what really is an unprecedented public health situation, at least in the modern era in the United States, and that therefore has presented many, many unprecedented legal questions going forward. Um, for example, you know, one of the issues that I know many states are dealing with, Kansas is no exception, is that our executive authorities are acting under um, emergency powers, statutes, or constitutional grants of authority that really were designed for discrete, localized, and much more finite disasters, things like floods or tornadoes. Uh, they really weren't designed for statewide disasters that require responses that are substantially intrusive upon the day-to-day -day activities, including some of the fundamental rights, not just to people immediately affected, but of all citizens, whether they have been actually affected uh, in their day-to-day -day lives by the virus or not. And so, you know, there are some extraordinary questions being presented. And for our part, um, you know, we've worked very collaboratively with uh, our governor and other authorities in Kansas. Uh, I think we have helped everybody avoid uh, unnecessary uh, problems where you pit liberties against uh, the public health needs. Uh, we've worked around a lot of those. We've had a couple of little hiccups, but I think on the whole, we've been able to work through things pretty well. So uh, as our last question, I'm sure all of the Supreme Court justices who regularly listen to our podcast want to know. Um, What's the next Supreme Court-bound case coming out of Kansas? <laughs> well, I, I don't know because we don't have any cert petitions granted now, but we do have one pending. So, um, you know, I'll put in a plug for it and hope that it's the next one that gets granted. We have a case, it's a consolidated case, Kansas versus Betger, 
I think, is the lead case. Kansas versus Johnson is the other. It's a really interesting question. It's a First Amendment speech question. We, like I think many states, have a criminal threat statute that criminalizes both um, intentional criminal threats and reckless criminal threats. And our courts have now struck down as a violation of the First Amendment speech clause the reckless criminal threat uh, prong of that. And their, their bright line holding, it's a categorical, it's, it was a facial challenge, their, their bright line holding was that um, uh, the First Amendment, particularly read through the lens of um, the cross-burning case in Virginia Black, um, does not allow states to criminalize reckless threats. Uh, we obviously think otherwise, and we think it's a really interesting question that the court has had in front of it before but hasn't squarely answered, and uh, we're hopeful they might take this case as the opportunity to answer it. Well, the justices certainly love their First Amendment questions, so it sounds like you're on the right track. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We hope. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate your interest. Thanks for the chance to visit. That will be an interesting uh, petition to watch, a little uh, shades of a few terms ago, the Alonis case, which was uh, an interesting one. Oh, yeah, that was a fun. That was the rap lyrics Rapper, case. yeah, the, the lyrics. Also, a little tidbit from that case that I'll always remember was that picture of John Elwood, who uh, represented Alonis in that case out in front of the Supreme Court with his very, very sad, sad face, and it looked exactly like Grumpy Cat. Um. Wow. <laughs> That's quite the inside baseball that you can only get on the Cases and Controversies podcast. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, well, for more uh, gems like that, you can follow along with all the Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks for listening. All right. Jordan doesn't thank you. Jordan doesn't care if you listen or not. Hey there, I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor for Bloomberg Government. And I'm Greg Giroux, senior elections reporter for Bloomberg Government. Check out our podcast, Down Ballot Counts. Each week, Greg and I will be breaking down all of those down ballot elections that make up the fight for the U.S. Congress. Listen and subscribe to Down Ballot Counts from Bloomberg Government wherever you get your podcasts.